So we're going to pick up the storyline <laughs> from the time that Jesus was crucified, right? We just talked about that's Easter. From the time that he was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, and then he rose from the dead. Yeah, it's a big deal, and it's a hard deal at the same time. And now we're looking at what happens next. What did the beginning of the church look like? And we're gathering our information primarily here from Luke because he wrote the book of Acts. Luke is part of a, a really famous four-man band. Perhaps you've heard of them. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, Paul, and Luke. Uh, no, Luke and John. Shoot, I got that wrong. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the guys who wrote the four Gospels. And uh, Acts tells us what happened during the next 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So something that we learned uh, early on and we talked about this in the last episode, it becomes more clear that the first Christians, those very first Christians, and the Christians throughout the first century and, you know, second century, third century, they had a different foundation for their Christian faith than many of us have. For those first followers, there was nothing like we would recognize as a Bible. All of us have only ever known a world where the Bible exists. Uh, it's known throughout our culture, and it's kind of well, it's just always been there, hasn't it? Yeah. And so if, even if you don't read it, even if you don't like it, um, you have heard of it, and you have probably heard parts of what's in it. But the Bible, in any way that we would recognize it, wouldn't arrive until the early fourth century. And, and what they based their faith on then was not that book. It's what I encouraged you to, last episode to place your faith on as well. And that was an event. And that event is the resurrection. The resurrection is why they believed and why they chose to continue and for most of them to restart to follow Jesus because everyone had stopped following Jesus. And this should be the reason that we choose to follow as well. Meanwhile, back at the story, the church launches. The church launches in the city of Jerusalem, and hundreds and then thousands within the, the region of Judea embrace the message of Jesus. But this is a Jewish area, and so it's not surprising to discover that the very first Christians gave the whole movement a very Jewish flavor. And this is totally understandable since most of the earliest Christians were Jews. Most of the Christian leaders actually stayed in Jerusalem and sometimes out into Judea. Most of them had been raised Jewish, and so it was a real challenge to begin to figure out how do you untangle Jewish tradition and habits from Christian beliefs. It, it was new to start thinking as a Christian person and not as a Jewish person, and so they began to mix and match covenants. They began mixing old with the new, and the old covenant and the, and the new covenant, these two different things. And you can understand why this is so tricky. They had been raised their entire lives under what we would now call the old covenant. That's our name for it. They would call it the Mosaic covenant, that covenant that God made through Moses at a mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And they're mixing things together from that and from what they had just learned to believe from Jesus. And for them, that whole Moses thing is just so big and so powerful. It's so influential. Where Moses came down from the mountain, he's got the, the tablets from God himself, and it's the civil law, and it's their dietary laws, and it's the rules to live by, and all those things. 613 laws. 
And then Jesus had said that he came and he was establishing a brand new covenant with the world, not with one nation, but with the world. And this new covenant has been given to replace the old covenant. But these people had spent their whole lives growing up under the old covenant. And their consciences were hardwired to think that way. The new covenant, it was, well, it, it's new. <laughs> and it was going to take some time to figure out how to move forward. It's different. It's not the same. And they didn't call it old. They just called it the law and the prophets. They had been raised to believe certain things. But more specifically, they had been raised to behave in certain ways. It's very difficult for them to just break away from the law and the prophets, from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament thinking. But, and, and th this is why we're, we're uh, kind of talking about this, eventually they did break away from it. And this might be a story that you can relate to. It might be a story that you were still in the process of, of living and writing as well. This untangling is challenging. Back to the story. Hundreds and thousands of people around Jerusalem become Christians. And, and then persecution breaks out because the religious leaders, well, they had had Jesus crucified. And now there are way more Jesus followers and they just can't understand what's going on. The religious leaders understand that the message of the church is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And they didn't like that because they were the ones who made him dead. So persecution breaks out against what they call back then the way. All right? They didn't call it the church yet, and they didn't call them Christians yet. The ringleader of this persecution crew, of uh, persecuting the, the, the way, was a man named Saul of Tarsus. So he later shows up again in the story. I'm giving you a little bit of a spoiler here. He comes back in the story under his Roman name, and his, that name is Paul. So this Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, and he was a really good Pharisee. Like all-star level, Saul was expert. Uh, he was good at keeping the Old Covenant, the Jewish law. Later on, in one of his letters, he's, he throws down a little bit of his resume just to give you a, a picture for it, and that's in uh, Philippians chapter 3 verse 4. So he's describing why you would have confidence in what you are as a person. Though I have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Five, circumcised on the eighth day, boom. Of the people of Israel, boom. Of the tribe of Benjamin, boom. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, which is the highest, hardest level. Six, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That's Paul, right? So Saul of Tarsus, he was a top-notch lawkeeper, a good, solid Jewish boy who grew up to be a good, solid Jewish law-abiding man. He understood that the way was a threat to Judaism. So he decided that he was going to go out single-handedly and shut this whole thing down, nip it in the bud before it ever has a chance to begin to really flourish. So timeline, you can write your little timeline today. We're going to hit that a couple times. About three to five years after the resurrection, Saul comes out strong, and he says, enough is enough. No more of this whole new Jewish cult. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, 
Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Disciples here is a more general term uh, for Jesus' followers. He's not talking specifically, not gunning for the twelve, right? So he went to the high priest, verse 2, and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, another city, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether they be men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Damascus, uh, you know your ancient uh, geography. Uh, It's way up north, uh, but we get another really important detail here, and it probably doesn't stand out to you too much, but even in the oppression, the way began to display itself as being different, and partially because of how they treated women. The surrounding culture treated them differently. Here they were called, again, men and women. The women were very much included. So Saul goes to the high priest, and he says, pin pin the deputy shield on my cowboy vest, okay? Because I'm going out to be a lawman, like the Texas Rangers. He's going after them. Filthy varmints going to get this place cleaned up. Please let me go with your blessing and your authority. And I'm going to round up any of the followers of the way. I'm going to put them in chains, load them on wagons, bring them back down to Jerusalem for a trial. He's so serious that he had no problem leveraging violence to do what he considered the will of God. Now, why did he think that leveraging violence to do the will of God was okay? Did he just not care? Because of what he read in and what he was taught from the Old Covenant. The issue was not an issue of conscience, okay? So he went to the high priest, the person who oversaw all of ancient Judaism at that time, and said, is it okay if I use violence in order to round up all these followers of the way in order to bring them here for trial? I'm doing a good thing, right? And the high priest didn't say, no, 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 that's against our scriptures. The high priest says, absolutely, Let me write these letters of authority for you, and now, how soon can you leave? So Saul sets out to destroy the church, thinking all the time that he's doing God a favor. Have you ever done God a favor? Not any issue of conscience with the use of violence. People were executed. They had already killed Jesus. They had flogged Peter and John. We just talked about that. They had stoned another guy named Stephen, So it was open season on the followers of the way, both men and women. And Saul of Tarsus wanted to lead the way. So he takes these letters of authority from the high priest, takes his assigned temple guards with him, and they head up north to Damascus. It's about 315 kilometers away. Then something happens, right? Something big happens, something that has entered our cultural lexicon. It's become a figure of speech. As he's on the way to Damascus with a whole bunch of people with him, he's going to have a Damascus Road experience. And suddenly there is bright light, and he is blinded by the light. That light, he's knocked to the ground, and he opens his eyes, but now he can't see. The people around him, they're not so sure what happened. So they, they, they collect everything back up, and they continue. They finish their journey. They get to Damascus. But the plan has changed. Saul can't round anybody up. And the fellows with him, they don't know what to do because Saul's the boss, right? We just do what he said. But, but Saul of Tarsus, 
He knows that this was a divine intervention, that God has intersected with him. God is the one that blinded him, and God was up to something, and it looks like perhaps Saul found himself clearly at odds with God. Meanwhile, in another part of Damascus, God taps a different man on the shoulder, Ananias. Saul of Tarsus is in town, and I would like for you to go and meet up with him. I have a message for him. Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 14. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name God. I, I know all about this guy already. We know what's going on. Didn't you hear me? I was just praying that you would protect us from him. I mean, I was packing. I'm, I'm getting ready to, to, maybe I'll go visit my uncle. Maybe I'll go do some fishing. Maybe I won't be around here. And now you're telling me that you want me to go and have an appointment with him? Are you kidding Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, no, I kiddeth not. Go, all right? This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. 16, some more foreshadowing here. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So God recruits Saul of Tarsus. And he's a Roman citizen. So he has another name, and that name is Paul. And as he begins to do pioneering, missionary work all around the Mediterranean Rim, he begins to use his Roman name so that he would have greater influence with the Greeks and with the Romans, with all the Gentiles, all the people who are not Jews. And there's a cool thing to see here as you go along. So he's blind, right? Ananias shows up, and Ananias in that moment was clearly living in faith, right? He was placing his full weight and life on the promise of God. He shows up, lays his hands on Saul, prays that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Boom, right then, right away, no waiting. Then, after that, he got some food. You don't wait on baptism, right? When you have a hint that God is prompting you, let's not stall in the pathway. Not only did he regain his physical sight, but the Apostle Paul, as he was, you know, shortly to be renamed and to become known throughout history as, his eyes were physically opened, but they opened with extraordinary clarity <coughs> about the difference and the conflict between the Old Covenant that he had grown up obeying, that he was really good at obeying, and the new covenant that had been launched by Jesus. And he saw what his contemporaries missed. Maybe that's what happens when you've been blinded and then healed. But Paul saw the incompatibility of the old and the new covenants. But not as it pertains to salvation, okay? Everyone has always been saved by grace. Everyone has always been saved by faith. It has never been, do these right things in the right way and you have earned salvation. That has never been true. 
Some Jewish people thought that they were saved by birth. If you were born Jewish, you're just in, based on God's covenant with the nation of Israel. But somehow Paul got this, and he understood it so quickly, like overnight. He made a switch in understanding, and he was transformed from one day being a violent inquisitor out to round up men and women and have them executed for their beliefs. Transformation by the renewing of his mind. And he became a person who never leveraged violence again in the name of God. This radical, this rapid transformation is evidenced throughout his life, throughout his writing that we get to see. And he goes on to continually write about radical, selfless love. Like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he describes love, what he describes what Jesus is like while using the word love. He says, love is patient, love is kind, keeps no record of wrongs. Do you remember this? 1 Corinthians 13. The mindset changed from clean up our nation to reach all nations. Let's take this message everywhere into everyone. And the change that Paul went through was releasing God's temporary and conditional covenant with the people of Israel, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, and he embraced God's new permanent and unconditional covenant with the entire human race. Back to Peter. Yep, Peter, don't forget about Peter. It's Paul, Saul, Peter, we're back. He's struggling with the two covenants at the same time thing. Uh, he's Jewish. He's always been Jewish. Uh, and what he knows is Jewish, but yet he knows Jesus. And I was with Jesus, and there's resurrection, and that changed everything. And there's that conversation I remember with Jesus telling us about the new covenant. He, he told Peter, I'm initiating this, and time is moving along here. So we're now jumping back into Peter's world. So now we're about 10 years after the resurrection. So about five years after Saul was blinded and then became the Apostle Paul. So here's Peter's story. He's over near the Mediterranean Sea. Ooh, it's beautiful. Nice place called Joppa, west of Jerusalem. But his story is going to involve a trip up to Caesarea, which is just north. Just keep following the coast. You'll get up there, all right? But Peter's in Joppa. He's, he's there to visit some friends. It's around noon, and Peter goes up onto the roof going to relax a little bit, okay? So, a little bit of rest there. You're going to enjoy some of this sun, maybe the view. Some of that Mediterranean breeze feels so nice. He's been busy, so he's a little bit drowsy, and uh, they're preparing food for him downstairs, and so he falls asleep to the smell of food cooking below him. And when he's asleep, he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees all kinds of animals. This is Acts chapter 10. You can go read this. And the animals that he sees, they're a wide assortment of animals, that as a Jewish man, he is not allowed to touch, to kill, or to eat. He knows this because he's Jewish. And in his dream, he hears a voice that says, kill him, cook him, eat him. That is a little bit of a loose paraphrase. <laughs> Verse 14, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. I know better. Right? What you're talking about, what this thing is right here, this is exactly what I was raised not to do. I know the law, 
and I know the prophets. And in the law, God, in case you forgot, it tells me to not do these things. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Say, what? This is confusing, right? Since he was a child, he was taught that all of these animals are off limits. His scripture teaches that these animals are off limits. And now he's hearing this voice that is powerfully resonating within him, a voice that he believes, he is convinced that that is the voice of God. That voice is saying now, go ahead, do what you have been taught your whole life not to do. So here's the question that we want to ask all of the time as well. We want to ask it right along with Peter. Peter, I'm with you on this one. Did God change his mind? I mean, is this not the same conversation that many of us have had with regard to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant? How do we put these pieces together? Did God change his mind? The answer is no. God changed covenants. The Mosaic covenant is now over. That covenant that God used to establish the nation of Israel was a means to an end. And once Jesus showed up, He fulfilled that covenant, thereby ending it. And then He instituted the new covenant. But mixing and matching is so much easier. As soon as His vision's over, there's a knock on the door. Peter's woken up with a sense, someone is here to see me. So he goes downstairs, and he's a little freaked out because there's two men and a soldier And his past experiences with soldiers, not great. But the Spirit, we learn. We learn to live by the Spirit instead of the law. The Holy Spirit has clued him in that these visitors are here for him and that Peter should go with him. It's all okay. The next part's kind of cool. And it reminds us that our God loves to work in partnership with us. He has set this in motion. Verse 22, the men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. So, from that long list, 613 laws that were regularly practiced by the Jews, there is a directive that Jews were not to enter the house of a Gentile. This will be a little hard for you to get your head around because you don't live like this. But Peter had never been in the house of a non-Jew. So this invitation is complicated. The Old Covenant's clear. Don't contaminate yourselves with Gentiles. Next morning, Peter and some of his friends, they set out with these guys and they head up to Caesarea. And when they arrive, the door opens and there right in front of him is the threshold Cornelius uh, comes out, meets him, and is so grateful to see him, so grateful that he came, that he bows down in front of Peter. Verse 26. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. When he remembers the vision that he'd had about those things being clean and unclean, he bites his lip. 
steps into the house. Okay, I'm doing it, God. I'm believing you, God. I'm trusting in you. 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, Gentile people. Oh, great. Did you invite everyone you know? And he takes a deep breath. And he kind of lets them know what's going on inside his head. Not a really good thing to say to a group of people, but 28, here he comes. He said to them, you are all well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, and you are all Gentiles. Something happened. Something happened for me to come here. Peter did not misunderstand the law, okay? It was exclusive and excluding. It was designed by God to be that way on, a, on purpose. And now he's being called to let go of all that. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It's a good news for you. That's why I'm here, all right? I got clearance on this from God. Just last week, you were all impure and unclean to me. That's what I believed. That's what I practiced. I actually now that I think about it, got clearance from Jesus a while ago. But it has taken a long time for this to sink in for me. Again, this is about 10 years after the resurrection. 10 years that this has been sort of simmering on the back burner. 34, then Peter began to speak. Now, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Hallelujah. 35, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Jesus told me this. Jesus laid it all out before me, but I didn't get it. It didn't sink in. I I didn't mean for it not to sink in. It just didn't sink in. I got some of it, but it's been really hard making these changes. Jesus had said, go into all the world, and and yet I decided I'd stay in Judea. I mean, wasn't that far enough? Wasn't that what he meant? Go into all the world, but don't leave whatever it is that you're familiar with. I now understand that everyone is welcome. Okay, okay, but enough about me and what I've been going through, all right? Let me talk to you now. You wanted me to come here. I'm up here because you want to hear about Jesus, so let me tell you all about him. And so he starts to tell the story. On the banks of the Jordan River, there was John and the story goes on and he weaves that whole story of Jesus to the spellbound audience. And then to finish it off, he points to the guys that came with him. Verse 39, and he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he gets to his finale. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. 40. But God raised him from the dead on the third day, and caused him to be seen. And I saw him. And we saw him. More than once we saw him. We saw him die, and then we saw him again alive. We ate with him. We saw him resurrected. So Peter's not even done teaching when something unexpected happens again. It surprises everyone there. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. 45, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. That's us. The same thing that had happened to the believers back 10 years or so ago in Jerusalem, it just happened to the Gentiles, even to the Gentiles. They had the same experience, and these guys are like astonished. Their mind is blown. This is a way bigger deal than we realized. God really means everyone. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the Word of God. Two. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. Three. And they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Not everybody was catching on. How could you? The law of Moses is quite clear. Peter, what were you thinking? And most of us, we like to mix and match the old and the new covenants. We behave like the circumcised believers because we love the rules. Oh, man, we love the laws, especially for you. I like the laws for you. We're not about bending the laws. We're not about breaking any laws. No abandoning the laws. There's a line, do this and you're in. Do that and you are out. And right now, you are out. What were you even thinking? Meanwhile, persecution breaks out. Lots of followers of the way are leaving Jerusalem. Saul might not be chasing down these people, but the temple is still hard at work, eradicating the problem, and they are fleeing, some of them out of Judea. Jerusalem is the city, okay, and the, uh, Judea is the region or the, the province that it's in. Some of the Jesus followers went way, way, way up north to the city of Antioch. It's about 480 kilometers north of Jerusalem, and that is a long walk. That is a long walk when you are fleeing. Antioch is a very wealthy, primarily Greek and Roman city. Jews are here. There, uh, there's a couple of synagogues, but this is not a Jewish place, right? So they arrive piling in all these people, and they just start talking about Jesus. It's just what these people do. It wasn't their job or anything like that. It was just gushing out of them, even after they just fled for their lives, for their safety, because they were talking about Jesus. Still got Jesus on the brain. Can't get Jesus off my brain. And so lots of Gentiles have put their faith in Jesus. So many that the followers of the way sent to Jerusalem for help. We need reinforcements. The churches up here in the north are just blowing up with new people who are eager to be involved in this Jesus story, to be involved in the Jesus movement, to be generous in their time, their treasure, and their talent. They're saying to us, let me in. So people from Jerusalem pour in to teach. Acts eleven twenty one. the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The church in Jerusalem sends a guy named Barnabas, and guess what? Barnabas is good, all right? People are joining rapidly, and they are desperate to learn and to be involved. And Barnabas, man, he sees, he gets, he goes, I need help. So he decides to get some help. Somebody who has been quietly studying and learning in the background for about 10 years. Can you guess who? 
Verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 26, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a, so for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And when they were called Christians first at Antioch, no one meant it as a compliment. They called that because it was trash talk, right? Christ one, little Jesus, little Christ ones. But the name stuck. And it didn't take long before they all just figured that the name was actually accurate and kind of helpful and maybe even a badge of honor. And so it stuck. It's still here. Christianity is spreading. Do you remember that one special verse back at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, right near the beginning? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what's happening. Christianity is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea. And now it's even out into the Gentile world. And it got pushed there. It got pushed outwards because of the persecution. So back in Jerusalem, it's like the head office, okay? And they're getting worried. What are we going to do? There's so many Gentiles entering into our thing, but they don't even know, like the Ten Commandments. They don't even know the stories. Yet they're becoming Christians. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And that's just part of the story that continues next episode. What do we do indeed? But this still impacts us right now because this is our struggle today. We were, you were, when you got one, you're given a Bible, right? One book, a big book. It's got a front cover, it's got a back cover with a title on the front cover and one on the spine and it just says the Bible. One book, right? And that's the way we see it. And if you look inside, you'll learn that there are two major sections that are labeled through the Latin as the Old Testament and the New Testament. But to use more Hebrew language, which would have been infinitely more helpful, you could read that as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Testament, covenant, different, same word basically from different languages. The Old Covenant is the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures, and within it you're going to find 39 ancient historical manuscripts that describe Israel's growing relationship with God and learning His directions to become a just and worshiping people. It describes the stories surrounding a covenant that was made to a nation. Second section, uh, called the New Covenant, you're going to find 27 ancient historical manuscripts describing and displaying the history around the arrival of a new covenant between God and all nations. They are not the same thing. One God, one collection of scriptures, two key covenants. But one of the covenants was made to include you, and the other one was not. All of the Scripture is a gift to us, but only one of the covenants is for us. Eventually, like Peter, who went through, uh, went through his struggles, and there's more to come, 
The early church figures this out as well. The Old Covenant, basically here, all the way from Exodus through Malachi, is a conditional covenant. That means I will, if you will, that's God speaking to the nation of Israel. That's not our covenant. Ours is better. There's even more of the good news that can be so liberating for us. So to help bring this into focus, to figure out what this means in terms of application to our lives, what does this mean for me? How do I see this working out in my life? Here's a question that we need to stop asking, and you know this question. It's a well-known question, and it continues to cause trouble. Here's the question. What does the Bible say about that? Well, how, how do we decide what we, what we need to do? Well, what, what does the Bible say about that? Now, the Bible itself, of course, doesn't say anything. But what can I find written within? What does it teach about this? Here's the problem. The Old Covenant says, stone her. And the New Covenant says, forgive her. The Old Covenant says, pray for your enemy's death. The new covenant says pray for your enemies. That's what the Bible says. So how do we fix this? I mean, what's a better question that we can ask? You could say, what does the new covenant teach? Or even better, what does Jesus teach? Jesus first, everything else after. So basic ongoing principles that you can use to discern behavior choices, that you can use to evaluate yourself, basic information that you can use to discern the behavior of others as it relates to you. Does it look and smell like Jesus? For you, it's a way to say, am I growing more like Jesus? Do others perceive me as Christ-like? Not because I tell them, but because there's just a sense. There's just an aroma of Jesus. It's not about any single moment in time, right? But it's an ongoing progression. So I'm going to tell you two passages, and I'm not going to dive in on either one of them today. I'm going to assign them to you as homework for you to read later on this week. Go over these. You know what? Learn these. It's not hard. Neither one of them is long. You can even memorize them. I believe in you. You can do this. Heck, you know what you could do? You could turn them into a song. Yeah, you could sing them if you like. Pick the tune, whatever you want. Do that. Go ahead. Sing them. I said it. <laughs> Use them regularly, though. Get to be familiar with them. The first one is Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, 22 and 23. And this describes your aroma. Do you smell like Jesus? When you walk into the room, what does it smell like? As, as peop, are, are, are people that see you come in, walking into that room, are they, are, are, are they glad or are they wondering where that bad, bad smell just came from? 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is fruit, not fruits. They are a package. That's your aroma. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. How do we know what Jesus looks like? 
Jesus is the full revelation of God the Father. He is the Son of God. God is love. What does love look like? Paul goes out of his way to bring to life for us that new commandment that Jesus gave. Do you remember the new commandment that Jesus gave? Do you remember that really important moment? John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new command I give to you. Love one another. How? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So don't, don't go around looking for, to find faults. Okay, you'll always find them. You will always be able to look for them. Go looking for ways to show love and to be loving. What you seek, you will find. And that love will always look like Jesus. So Paul fleshes out Jesus' new commandment. He fleshes out in, in that first letter that he sent to his friends in the, uh, the, the city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1-8. And I'm not going to read it for you. I'm assigning it for you. Go ahead and read it. Look it up. And here's what I want you to do. Read it three times. First time, just read it as it is. Out loud is best for this. Second time, read it and replace the word love with the word, the word, the name Jesus. Then the third time you read it, and this one will be harder, but don't stop until you finish. Third time, replace the word love with your own name. How do you feel saying that about yourself? Read it out loud with your name in it. Tell me next week how that went for you. Better yet, send me a message this week and say, I did it. Man, did it feel weird. That's what love looks like. May you go forward looking, smelling like Jesus in ever-increasing measure. Now, you've heard people huh, accentuate these things in bad ways, okay? Maybe it was a preacher that you used to hear. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a guy that you know at work. Maybe it's someone who's even in this church. And they hate sin. They tell you that they hate it. And they will rage against the evil wickedness of sinners. Sin is a violation. You need to consider the holiness of God. And they're angry at sinners, but they're somehow happy about hell. They're angry at sinners, and they're happy about hell. I know people like this. This is old covenant thinking. This is an old covenant prophet raging against the nation of Israel. God's going to judge you. God's going to get you. And I hope he does it soon. It's all old covenant. In the new covenant, do you know what we discover? Sin doesn't make God angry. Sin breaks God's heart. Sin should break our hearts because sin breaks people. And if God really so loved the world that He gave His Son, He is for the world. God is not against sin because He is against you. God is against sin because He is for you, and sin breaks people. Sin can break you. And it's not my job to judge those who are outside of the church. It is my job to love those who are far from God because God is for the outsiders. And once upon a time, each one of us has been an outsider. The outsiders are the reason that God sent His Son to earth. He came 
for us. He came to save us. It's our job to love well so that the world will know that God loves them and that Jesus died for them. It is our job to delight and to display that to each other, to the world around us. May such love increase. Kind Father, I thank you again for the gift that we have of Jesus. God, I thank you for displaying your power when you raised him from the dead. It changes everything. We can be changed. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that created the world, that set it spinning on its axis. It's the same power that is available to us and all who carry the Holy Spirit. We are not alone. We are not powerless. We are not defenseless. But we look and we smell different than the world around us. And we look and smell different to entice, to welcome to point them towards Jesus, not to bring about shame or guilt, but to offer an alternate way. It's hard for people to jump in on, but when you work in and through us, you make us compelling and you make us irresistible. Lord Jesus, do that in the lives of my friends that are here and that are watching online or listening later. Work in us. Holy Spirit, be active in our lives that we might look and smell just like Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do you stand here?